Today I'm joined by Bernard Marantelli. Bernard, thank you very much for coming on. Before we get into this episode, make sure you follow us on Twitter, at BettingPod, and check out the website, businessofbetting.com. Guest suggestions are much appreciated. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Betfair Proprietary Limited. Betfair operates a betting exchange and is licensed in the Northern Territory of Australia. Residents of Australia can join Betfair by visiting betfair.com.au and support this podcast by using promo code BOBPOD. Please gamble responsibly. So thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy this episode of the Business of Betting podcast. Today I'm joined by Bernard Marantelli. Bernard, thank you very much for coming on. No problem, Jake. Thanks for having me. So, Bernard, most will know you as the the co-founder of Colossus Bets, but before then, how did it all get started for you in this industry? Uh, Well, look, I grew up as the son of a bookmaker in uh, Melbourne. Um, My father was and is a bookmaker. His two brothers were were bookmakers, and, and some of my cousins were bookmakers. So I grew up in a bookmaking family. Um, betting place at the races as a as a late teen, doing greyhound form in my mid teenage years, helping my dad watch greyhound videos and VHS videos back in those days, etc., and helping price and risk manage and and bag at the races over my late teens and university years. So it sounds like you did everything from a bit of help on the bookmaking side, some betting and. What what else shaped you throughout that time? Were you always destined to to get involved in the betting and bookmaking industry? I don't think always destined. I my university was um, genetics biochemistry. When I left university in uh, the late nineties, I took an approach of that you know gambling was a declining industry. I didn't necessarily see it. I didn't necessarily predict. Um, that the internet would rescue it then, you know, 97, the internet is really in its infancy as a business. Um, I saw racing and gambling on racing and greyhounds declining or certainly attendances on the course. You weren't really allowed to have corporate bookmakers then, um, et cetera, et cetera. So I went off to work in the biotech industry and kind of, uh, for a period of time, gambling, um, disappeared into the background of my life. Um, and then I was in the biotech industry in Europe when I saw betting exchanges come to fruition in about 2001, um, 2002, where the internet was starting to become a, a, a realistic business medium as well. And I got um, involved in gambling again through running um, robots or automated algorithms on the exchanges. And then it started to come back into my life again. So I guess it was really out of, only out of my life for, you know, four years between the, you know, 97 and 2001 in reality. Was there a sense of excitement around the early 2000s with the exchanges coming back and a bit of a change in the betting industry with the advent of the internet? Yeah, I think there was. I don't think I, you know, my mindset wasn't at that stage about how do you make an online gambling company and perhaps if I 
had have been alert or aware enough to do it at that stage, I could have done um, very well building something then. Um, you know, but I could have completely failed as well. I wouldn't suggest that I was, I'm an internet genius or a marketer or anything like that. So um, I think I could have been lucky then. Uh, instead, I went down the pathway of betting um, in a you know professional manner, for lack of a better word, on the betting exchanges, um, building robots, uh, making money, uh, studying markets. Um, and look, at the same time as about then through 2004 and five, um, I was betting systematically in high volumes and making good money. I was also thinking of getting out of biotech back into the maths financial type side of the world. So I went off and did an MBA at London Business School. And at the end of London Business School, I went to Deutsche Bank and traded options for four years. Um, but it was during those uh, years of, of studying um, and the, you know, not at Deutsche because I was flat out at Deutsche, but it was in those years of studying that I really focused on building better um, automated algorithms uh, for the exchanges and started to bet in some of the multi-leg jackpots as well. Um, so it, it, it slowly accumulated from, you know, 2001 with with Betfair. But I think still in that mind, in that period, sorry, my focus was on how do you make money gambling, not how do you build a a a product or or an operator as your as your asset base. So, what was your approach? You touched on a few things, and I'm guessing robots and algorithms, and you know, using the exchange in a systematic way to make money was probably not too common in the early 2000s. What were some of the things that you focused on to be able to grind out a profit? Oh, look, it's a really double-edged sword, Jake, when people ask you that sort of question because you've, you've, got, you've got two issues. You can tell them something that is um, – or you've got two choices. You can tell them something that is false or uninteresting and makes you look like an idiot, um, or you can tell them the truth of what you did and have them come and compete with you or have them learn something from you. So it's really hard to explain um, what did you do exactly um, because, of course, you just generate a, a wave of competitors. I think what I would say is that I think on average the, the, the benefit of some um, Einstein-like equation that nobody else knows or can invent – is not really the key driver to whether you make money or not in a systematic way on an exchange or a pool or betting in a shop or whatever. I think the key to somehow differentiate loss-making from profitable strategies is a lot more about being pedantic, being fast, having good data, uh, cleaning the data, analyzing where you win and lose, making sure your analysis is statistically robust. You're not making decisions on data sets that are dirty or data sets that are not large enough to support the decision you're making. So I, I think more so, I, I think you need both to contribute to a profit. But I think if you don't have a good model, you're in trouble. But if you also don't have a pedantic approach, clean data, 
good testing, good analysis, um, good digestion of your data and clean data sets, I think you you're, uh, uh, you can get lost um, in a model. Um, you know, take little examples. How much of your loss on an exchange is generated by the fact that um, exchanges may miss the suspend of a race? You know, are you are you making fifty thousand a year betting pre-off, but losing forty thousand a year for bets that are matched marginally after the off, or bets that are matched during a horse playing up in the stalls? So you know that sort of um, diligence um, is very important when you look at your P and L. Um, you know, I know an example of a person who came to me one day and said, "Oh, Jesus Christ, I've um." I don't know if we're allowed. I don't know. In the in the modern world, you might not be allowed to say Jesus Christ. You might have to edit that out. But anyway, he came to me, and I'm I'm quoting him. So in that sense, he said it rather than me. And he said, "Oh, I looked at my P and L, and I was making a hundred thousand a year last year, and a hundred thousand a year this year, and this year I'm only making um, forty thousand. And you know, I didn't realize what happened. And what actually happened was he made a hundred thousand on England two years in a row and then he added America to his model and he was still making a hundred thousand on on England but he was losing sixty thousand in America and he wasn't doing the significant digestion of his P&L to realize that his model didn't work in America um, he just thought it works in England I'll build it in America or I'll expand it I'll make more money um, and and it didn't so it's that sort of um, simple analysis sometimes what is your P&L jumps versus flats, for argument's sake. What is your P&L football versus horses? And you might think that, well, surely nobody is not doing that sort of analysis. But I do think um, a lot of people can look at a big headline number and not forget, or, or a satisfactory headline number, and not pay attention that there's components inside there that are loss-making that they can um, eliminate or, or adjust to make better. Yeah, so do you think that approach that you've sort of taken us through there is possible for the vast majority of, of even semi or professional bettors getting, you know, access to good data, making sure it's clean, analyzing your approach and your system, being fast, all of that thing, all of those things. Is that something you would say that the vast majority of, of professionals out there could do? Yeah, look, I think... Um, you know, there's a real mixture of data sets you need or, or a real mixture of skills you need to be a professional. And and I think that's to be a professional in anything. If you want to be a professional interior designer, you know, you've got to have a, a good eye for things. You've got to have good people skills to manage your services, your supply. So, like, I think anything in life that you want to be professional at – you need a mixture of skill sets. And I think if you want to be professional gambler, I think you need someone with the skill sets that wakes up every day and says, right, how do I make money today? What's the area that I analyze? Is my best way to make more money today to fix my EPL model or to expand my EPL model onto La Liga as well? You need... A business person that can go and say, hey, I'm going to get a access point for Pinnacle or Matchbook or wherever you want to place these bets. You need a mathematician that is kind of in love 
with numbers and he says, right, I'm going to look at a model and find out how do I predict this price or this price movement? Do I predict the price fundamentally? Do I predict it behaviorally, etc.? And let's be clear, the mathematician who does that doesn't have the skill set or the drive to say, what is the next piece of business? Do I fix the model in England or do I expand the model to uh, Spain? And he doesn't have the business sense or the people skills to go and negotiate access points or, or, or a deal or realize that actually, if I've got this model that works, I want to bet it on Pinnacle rather than Matchbook or I want to bet it on Matchbook rather than um, – the the shops or or an online agent that will turn me off or front run me or something like that. So really, if you want to get outside of a, a hobby scenario, you need to really have someone. Um, you really need sort of two or three people that almost have um, different skill sets and different personalities, and that creates a lot of friction because the driven guy comes in every day and says, "Right, why the hell haven't we done B or C?" And the guy says, oh, well, because I found this really curious piece of, um, you know, intellectual thought process of how do we model this part of the EPL better? And I got lost in that for a week. Well, that doesn't help anyone from a, well, it might, but the business guy says, well, what did that do to my P&L? Well, nothing. So, like, why are we doing it? So, it, it creates friction that you're trying to marry completely different people together to work to a single objective when those people are really not aligned on, in some senses, what is important to their own personal happiness. So how long do you think it took for you to get comfortable doing all of that or being you know, surrounded by other people or working within a systematic approach? Did it come naturally or was it something that, that evolved over many, many years even? Well, I think, look, in many senses, if you talk to some of the people who work with me, I, you, they would say I'm still failing I'd, um, you know, working in a collaborative manner with people to to get particular models and and projects uh, run and profitable. Uh, you know, I think I succeed to the level I succeed, and there's certainly more successful groups and and much bigger groups, and there are smaller and less successful groups. So I think you know I've done well in that sense or well enough. Um, I think I succeed because I am enough of a mathematician to control the modelers. And I know that sounds like a horrible word to say you have to control someone, but to, uh, let's say, to understand and motivate the modelers. I'm enough of a business person to get the deal. So I kind of can overlap the three or four pieces that you kind of need to run one of these groups well. And I think if I look at some of the people who run other groups or – and when I say groups, you know, sometimes it's one person becoming a group of five. And I'm sure people have read uh, articles on syndicates like Tony Bloom that probably allegedly have three and four hundred people uh, – three and four hundred people working for them. So I think this um, – the growth from one to four hundred, uh, you know, requires – a person that's driven and a person who can knit together those skill sets. So I'd say it evolved for me because, you know, I 
My first robot was written with a long-term school friend. He was a programmer. I was a gambler and mathematician of sorts and studier of exchanges and ecosystems of sorts. And we threw together a little model that placed some correlation bets between various markets and kind of said, well, you know, if the correct score market indicates four goals and the 1x2 market indicates 3.7 goals, well, these markets are not perfectly correlated and probably they should be. Well, those were the sorts of things that you could make money off in 2004, but you couldn't make money off in 2008. But you'd already made enough money to kind of think, well, where do you go next? Which piece is broken now? Or And it's not to say that you were a mindless arbitrager in, in those days, but you were a – you arbitraged by correlation in real terms. And then over time, you started to realize which one was wrong and you would, you would participate more selectively rather than just participate in a correlated manner. So I think models evolve. Um, and I know people who made a lot of money in the early days, they never managed to evolve. Um, and, you know, they're driving Ubers now. I mean, that's a that's an expression. Um, but, you know, they're not making money anymore gambling and they're really tinkering around the edges now. So I think you have to constantly be moving and saying how do, you have to move to maintain your position and you have to really move to expand your position, I think, because the – Barriers to entry are, are lowering all the time. When we first built robots for Betfair, we bet in a screen scraping manner, which was a barrier to entry to a lot of people. A few years later, Betfair gave an API with an Excel plugin. Well, basically anyone could now build a VBA with an with a Betfair API and send 10,000 bets a minute to the exchange. So that removed the barrier to entry, which meant we had to move on and, and get better and faster as well. So can you talk through seeing and understanding what's happening in, in betting markets, whether it's the exchanges on the back and lay side, especially close to jump time or close to tip off or whatever it might be, or you know global betting markets moving or you know Asian handicap markets changing? It's very challenging for a lot of people to to look at those and see and understand what is happening. What are some of the things you can share in terms of learning and understanding betting markets generally? And there's always a sense of people want to try and capture and understand what's happening all the time, and it's awfully difficult. What is uh, what is your feeling on some of those topics? I think it's always evolving. I think if you look at a scenario where you say. When the exchanges first came in, the exchanges followed the bookmaker because people would think, well, if it's four to one with the bookmaker, I can offer four to one and a bit on the exchange, so that's fine. And then a few people said, well, yeah, but they don't really get favorite long shot bias correct. And then professionals came in and said, well, this is mispriced. So then the exchange markets got a lot better and the exchange markets drove themselves. Well, then the bookmaker price decided to follow the exchange market. And they said, well, if the exchange is $9, I can be 7 to 1. Well, then people manipulated the exchange market to get the bookmaker price. So then the bookmaker said, I need to be careful here. Then I think you saw a phase, and I think we're currently potentially still in that phase, where bookmakers may actually manipulate minor exchange markets to drive alleged arbitrages to come in and bet with them at a wrong price 
but they are the ones who have generated the wrong price by moving a you know a division two spanish game from 1.9 to 1.8 for four or five hundred dollars leaving 1.85 on their website capturing four or five thousand dollars from arbitrages who think they can hedge out of that position four days later when the market becomes liquid um and find that they can't head hedge themselves out four days later so i think you know in many senses when something becomes the prevailing wisdom that exchanges follow bookmakers well that's the time that it starts breaking and people say, well, bookmakers will follow exchanges. And once the prevailing wisdom is bookmakers follow exchanges, you'll find someone that's trying to take advantage of that prevailing wisdom. So I think you all always need to look to be a little bit ahead of, of the arms race in what is the – you need to be um, a little bit of contrarian to, to, to win and stay in front in some senses. And do you always feel like you need to know why something happened or you need to be able to explain or understand what's happening in those markets? Or are you happy as long as you're ahead of it, you're using it to your advantage and you understand to the extent you need it to win, that's more than enough for you? I am much more comfortable when data tells me something and I can intuitively, I either predicted that the data would tell me that or I can intuitively find a reason and an explanation of why that would be the case. You know, I'm concerned in a situation where my intuition says A should be the most profitable strategy and minus A is the most profitable strategy. And even if you Monte Carlo it or simulate it or um, do a statistical analysis on it that says, you know, A is... 95% likely to be a true result and you still can't find a way that explains why A is a true result, that that does bother me. Um, but there have been one or two examples in the last uh, 10 or 15 years where something that didn't, that I didn't seem to intuitively agree with has proved accurate over a long period of time. So in some senses, that's kind of... Um, you know, data mining. And that's kind of, well, you know, if it's happened continuously, it should, it could or will continue to happen. So, you know, you need to be careful in those scenarios that you can't justify why it's occurring, that you're not backfitting or data mining or, or you, you know, to the extent that you've generated a series of results that you think will continue. And really, you've just been so selective in, in looking backwards that you've backfitted the whole scenario. So as things have sort of transitioned from using gut feel, and it might be, as you mentioned earlier, watching a video and trying to assess which greyhound or which horse or whatever it might be is has had the best run, and there's a lot of subjective elements that go into that, towards now using the algorithmic approach and, and more analytical, have you seen people evolve and, and stay ahead of the curve, or do you think that those that are using a lot more subjective elements uh, are left behind? And you mentioned some maybe... Uh, Uber drivers now is is that something you've seen transition from the 90s to 2000s to now? Yeah, look, I think the 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 pure accessibility of data and computing power and and Excel has made you know everyone a genius or certainly much smarter than they used to be. Um, you know, the guy who used to go and um, you know clock 
clock the breakfast um the breakfast runs on you know a week before and know how fast they were training and stuff like that you know he would have an edge the guy who knew a horse had a, a wind operation or not over the break he had an edge so the the guy who bought the VHS videos and you know or stayed at Olympic Park Greyhounds two hours late on a Monday night to have the video to be able to watch the replays before those dogs ran again possibly on the Thursday night or the next Monday night um, you know they had edges well most of that stuff now you can go online and type in a dog's name or horse name and more or less get his video replay or their systems that off offer that sort of thing. So I think the people who work the hardest still win. If working the hardest is building a data model and you don't even know the name of a horse or you're not even interested in a horse, um, I think those people can be profitable still. If your skill set is watching hundreds of horse races a week and subjectively understanding the horses or seeing that that horse got trapped a little bit wide or that horse um, slipped a little bit and something that doesn't sneak into the um, official commentary or is not accurately captured in the official commentary or, you know, that the horse saw a dog next to the track and jumped badly which is you know didn't get picked up in the you know official commentary etc etc although you, to find an edge you basically have to study one element of the event and of the history uh in in a more diligent careful way than someone else has studied it and and look let's let's be clear the the winners in a horse racing market are Modelers that couldn't tell you a horse. They are owners and trainers that follow one horse explicitly well. They are anoraks that watch a lot of videos or the breeding or whatever. So, you know, there's there's some people bet on breeding and they their angle is they back uh Galileo four year olds and the Galileo three year olds. And and literally that's their angle because they think, oh, everyone says Galileo would be a superstar. But I have learned over time that Galileo is really as four-year-olds, not three-year-olds. So, And I don't know that that's a strategy. I don't want whoever's listening to run out and start laying Galileo three-year-olds and backing Galileo four-year-olds. But that could easily be a winning strategy of a person who has picked that up over time. Now, how does that if that is a winning strategy, there's another person who's got, I back John Gosden three-year-olds, but I laid John Gosden four-year-olds and he might be winning as well. And then there's another person who's doing data analysis that don't explicitly match either of those ideas, but roughly over time have that Galileo four-year-olds perform better. So they would be, as a Galileo three-year-old performs badly, they would be marking it longer and longer in their models through its three-year-old season. And then as it comes into its four-year-old season, they would start marking it shorter and shorter, but they wouldn't get that stepwise change, let's say, between its uh, spring as a three-year-old and its spring as a four-year-old. Yeah, no, that's, that's fascinating. The Betfair Exchange isn't a house that sets the odds. It's betting at its purest. One punter's opinion against another's. Play the game within the game at betfair.com.au. Gamble responsibly. 
I want to switch over now to talk a bit more about pools and tote betting. And certainly in many jurisdictions around the world, you see either state-run or state-protected monopolies for a lot of tote and pool bettings. And, and that's sort of potentially evolved around the world. But I'm curious as to what got you to want to be involved in, in this area, given it's been largely run that way. And, and listening to you now and a lot of your background suggests it may not have been a typical path for you. So what was the impetus to get you involved in in pool and tote betting? Well, look, I grew up in Australia where you could really only kind of do um, pool bets. And, you know, the quaddie was was appealing because I kind of thought, I kind of thought, you know, if people are betting into a four-leg race now and they don't really have a good idea of what prices the greyhounds are in race four. And I've marked a greyhound in the fourth leg at three to one and the newspapers got it six to one. Well, you know, maybe they're betting like it's six to one in race four. So maybe I should take a, a, a quaddy now before we get to leg four and it's three to one in the ring because the paper's wrong. And, and a lot of people not doing... Uh, a lot of analysis of betting on the paper or betting on the form guide comment or the rating in the or the star ratings in the in the restaurant upstairs and so you you were playing the the quaddies and you were playing them because they only had a 30 cent takeout which is better than betting win all up leg after leg um, and you're playing them because you think some of the grounds are mispriced and et cetera, et cetera. so i was always sort of messing around with wins and uh, trifectas and quaddies and all sorts of things. Um, and I think maybe in my first six or seven years, I was uh, I had an edge, but I had no bankroll management. You know, I was working for my father. I was a university student. I was earning, I don't know, $300 a week or something like that. And I'd regularly have four or $500 on a, on a Greyhound. Um, and sometimes you'd have $500 on a Greyhound where you only had $400 in your pocket. Um, because if you had no money and you were student kind of living week to week, bankroll management kind of didn't exist. Because if you suddenly went $100 into the red, you just wouldn't bet for a few days. You'd work for a few days and you'd have your $100 again. I think, so I was in those uh, jackpot bets um, and I was playing them a few times and there used to be a big six that rolled over and, you know, I remember my father once when there was a big, big six rollover to a, a million dollars or something, him and six bookies put in 15000 each and bought a $90,000 ticket into a, a million-dollar pool. And, you know, they all collaborated and discussed what to buy. And, you know, the pool paid out a million even though the public only spent 600000 that day. They ended up taking a small loss on it, but you could see that they had a – uh, potentially positive expectation there. So there was that intrigue, but again, I went to Europe and I left racing and then I got back into the exchanges making money. And then I saw, you know, the scoop six in the UK and I thought, oh, this is getting to be a big number. How much are the public playing? How are they playing? Actually, I'll have a bit of a go at this. So I started to play the scoop six and I was lucky enough to win the scoop six the first time I ever played it. And then I thought, well, how easy is this? So I, you know, I started to to play it, you know, borderline religiously. You know, I lost at it for two or three years, not like one for two or three years, but I lost more than I won. Um, and that was due to the complex volatility of the game. 
So I learned some, I learned more and more about bankroll management and I got uh, better at predicting how to play it. And, you know, I became uh, more focused on complex exotics because I guess there was a realization that the retail people that are playing those pools find them particularly hard to play well. So I think I expanded into that area. But again, there was an arms race and I look backwards and I see the pen and paper merchants that I put out of business um, because I was perhaps one of the first automated people to get into a bit of that space. Um, and now I've seen other people come into that space and start to put me out of business or certainly make it much harder. Um, and I think that's happened at the same time that I've predominantly said if you want to, as a, as a player of the jackpots i said actually these jackpots should have hedging auto hedging between legs they don't so i invented what became known as cash out um and i patented cash out around the world um and hopefully that will become very profitable for me um as as it's now basically universally adopted as a much must have feature of gambling so, you know, I looked and I said, well, if you play these pools, why don't when some when it rolls up to four million, it returns to a hundred thousand when someone's won it, the public don't play. Why don't you put up a million pound guarantee? So I kind of got this idea of guarantees. I got this idea of cash out, and I got this idea of when there's a big pool, dad and his eight mates put together a ticket. Well, and these students who used to be at university together, one guy's still betting 80 quid a week on a, on a particular game. But now one of them's in London and one of them's in Birmingham and one of them in Scotland. And they've got counterparty risk and settling risk and all of that. And it's a pain. So why don't we automate syndicates and make it a crowdfunding platform of jackpot bets? And that's what established Colossus. I said, I'm playing pools that are not – don't have modern features they haven't changed from the shop to online. They don't have social features. They don't have cash out. Well, I when I invented it, I called it cash in. It was when the industry copied me, they called it cash out. And I had to kind of migrate back to their term to call my own product cash out as well. So I think I decided, well, you know, betting is tricky and getting more complicated. Operating is tricky for different reasons, but certainly I'm a unique operator from a point of view of my knowledge of products and ecosystems. So I decided if I'm going to be a professional gambler into certain pools, actually I'd be pretty good at being a professional operator of jackpot pools and the cash out, the syndicates, the guarantees, the globally linked liquidity was the premise for building Colossus. So you ran through a number of reasons why it might be attractive for certain segments of the the betting market how do you make it attractive for all segments and you mentioned a little bit about the complex volatility that goes into it a lot of people will have an assessed price on a horse or a number of horses and want to have a fixed price bet for example or bet on the exchanges or whatever they might do how do they how do you migrate that type of professional semi-professional or serious punter across to pools betting any person that says when i bet a dollar it needs to be worth a dollar 10 you ultimately can't get them to play your product unless they believe their dollar is worth a dollar ten, which effectively means that I need to make the proposition of betting in my product valuable through a number of reasons. 
One, that they can cash out so they can manage their own volatility. So even a professional, now a mathematician will argue a professional shouldn't play a game that's too volatile for his bankroll. That's not entirely true because if you've got a fundamental right to manage your risk, you can play something that is too volatile, providing you can manage your risk through its progress cheaply enough. So you do have to convince a person who assesses a, a dollar bet as being worth a dollar ten, therefore he wants to place it. You can get them into your product if the retail people losing that ten cents and they're not getting it off you, or they think it's worth 10 cents, but they ultimately give it back to you through a, a cash out margin or volatility or something that they can't necessarily handle. But in real terms, you, you can't build a business out of people that think every time they bet a dollar, they're worth a dollar 10, because if they are, you will lose money. And if they aren't, they will eventually exit you and you'll lose liquidity. So I think in that sense, you don't really want that player in your in your system to be perfectly frank if you want to run an ecosystem where you're the only extractor you don't really want a a heavily informed participant turning dollars into dollar tens so how do you think pool betting or tote betting will be more successful and win long term especially if we transition more from you know state monopolies or quasi monopolies in this sort of space to corporate entities taking over and being more innovative and having cash out cash in type offerings having syndicated options for the potentially more recreational crowd what are some of the things you want to see or think you need to see to be successful longer term i think we've got there there are so many things happening right at the moment that um and and uh i won't imagine for a second that i was such a genius that i saw all this coming seven years ago that makes pools betting particularly attractive. But I think if you look, there is a political push against casinos at the moment. There is a political push against advertising. There is a political push against affiliates. There's a political push against anything that occurs frequently and rapidly. And if you look at all of those um, pushes, those social uh, lobbyist and political pushes. Most of those pushes don't touch uh, pools jackpots and don't touch lotteries. So I think, um, you know, there is an element that pools betting on jackpots with syndicates and cash out, and that can be fun and social and present the lowest form of um, gambling debt and stress and problem gambling. And, you know, a lot of people don't like the term responsible gambling and problem gambling, but, you know, cause the least damage. Um, so I think if you are in an environment over the next 10 years where there'll be a, uh, increasing pressure on the most rapid, high volume advertised affiliate, um, repetitive forms of gambling, Pools will kind of miss, I think, a lot of that heat. If you look this weekend and say, where can I win $10 million or upwards? Currently, it's only lottery. You can buy a lottery ticket on a bunch of random numbers you don't care about and win $10 million upwards. And you can spend your $2 and do that. I want to have a football pool and a racing pool where you can win $20 million. So on a Saturday, 
you say, actually, I'm not going to buy a Euro Millions ticket. I'm going to buy a Colossus 8 Correct Scores football ticket. And it's eight correct scores on eight football games that I want to watch anyway. Or I'm going to watch four of them anyway. And after six, I might get a cash out off of half a million. And after seven, I might get a cash out off of three million. And half, at half time of leg eight, I might get a cash out off of 16 million. Well, you know, that's newsworthy. It's lotto worthy. It's reality TV worthy. And I think ultimately um, that's a gigantic product. So, you know, my original premise of, of Colossus was um, lottery on sport. You know, I almost called it Sport Lotto, but someone else had already registered that domain. Um, but I think in real terms, you know, the future of pools betting in one sense is that. And where it's also very helpful as well, all the bookmakers at the moment are running around trying to avoid professionals. We've got a court case here in the UK at the moment where Bet365 are um, attempting not to pay out something like a million pound prize for a 19-year-old female university student who logged in one Thursday afternoon, deposited £20,000 and bet 700 five-folds in four races at Wolverhampton that evening. You know, and I don't know the details of the case, but I'm going to guess that a professional player had formulated that account and worked with that girl to place those bets and, you know, there I think there's a lot of contention there about is that a fair bet, not a fair bet, who should win this case, who will win this case. And, and I think 365 probably should and will win this case. And in fact, I think they're probably short odds of winning the case. And I think they probably should be short odds of winning the case. Um, but when bookmakers are trying to avoid those sorts of problems and bookmakers are trying to avoid sharp players – I think there's a space for the jackpot pools. You know, a bookmaker can take a bet at three to one off a sharp player and say, okay, I played him a few times. He was too sharp. I'm going to limit him or ban him. And there's a whole other discussion about whether that is legal or should be allowed or whatever. And there's political pressure potentially to put a minimum bet liability. In Australia, there is. In the UK, there isn't. I suspect it might come in the UK. But what I think a bookmaker doesn't want, and they already limit this by putting a maximum payout of a million dollars per person, and some of them have a maximum payout of a quarter of a million dollars. Um, and with those sorts of limitations on accumulators, I think there is a natural space as well for a bookmaker to operate a pool for the very big payouts. Yeah, and within that, I want to get your sense of the trajectory for the racing codes, you know, thoroughbreds and greyhounds and harness versus sports. Obviously, sport is much more global. You've talked about gathering all that volume up uh, within your certain offerings and products. What is your sense moving forward as to what will be most popular or most viable longer term? Is it sport or is it racing or can they both all work together? No, look, I think ultimately long term, um, long term, sport crushes racing. I think it's very hard to envisage a scenario where racing becomes dominant again. Look, so many problems. It's harder to understand. You know, Winx is an exception that she's raced for, what, four, five years to get the public in love with her. You know, the 
very best horses in the world frequently retire after a season or two. It's a sport that you bet on the horses, not the jockey. I think you've got some possibility of making the jockey the celebrity, you know, Frankie Dettori, Darren Gauci, whatever, you know, they hang around for two decades. You know, Lionel Messi and Ronaldo are global figures, like properly, properly global figures. They play football for 15 years. There's a passion, a lifelong passion behind a club or a sport. Uh, I think it's very hard to generate that sort of lifetime passion around a horse that runs for two years. You you don't follow Man U. You can't follow David Hayes as a trainer like you follow Man U as a team. That love of – I mean, you might like him because some of your big wins came from him, but there's not this religious infatuation with a horse or a trainer. So I think there's many reasons why why racing fails as a global entity and will continue to fail. But I don't think that means it goes to zero. I mean, I think the race courses are doing a much better job of having um, a social environment where people go for a good day out and bet $100. Okay, fine. It's not 20 years ago where you had 5,000 anoraks betting $500 or compulsive gamblers or degenerate gamblers, which have all their own reasons and problems that that should be stopped as well. But if you look at the pure volume, now you've got a lot of younger people going racing, but just betting socially. And when they leave, they never have a bet on racing again. Um, Whereas those same people are betting on football, possibly every weekend or many weekends. So I don't think horses ever reverse and go past sport as a betting medium again or certainly not in the next 20 or 30 years so and i think in that sense it's about maintaining or stemming the decline rather than ever becoming dominant again so one last question for you bernard and i very much appreciate your time this is more industry general uh, more than specific to any pool or bookmaking with the industry as it is heading now with a lot of consolidation a lot of big bookmaking groups and a lot of people will know Paddy Power they'll know Paddy Power Betfair they'll know Paddy Power Betfair that has sports bet in Australia now they have FanDuel in the US they have the daily fantasy platform draft so that is a, a certainly a consolidated group you you mentioned earlier bet365 and anyone that goes and looks into their numbers you know this week or this month and what they've done recently and the growth they've had over even the last 12 months is enormous what do you think this space in this industry generally is going to look like with a lot of the consolidation that's happening a lot of the changes with the u.s market and you know mgm gvc for example teaming up for a joint venture are you expecting the bigger to get bigger and that to continue in that that path or what else can we expect in this space yeah look i think i think generally the cost of regulation and and the cost of acquisition is going to get harder. And I think if the cost of regulation and the cost of acquisition of of players um, and AML and all of that is all going to become more expensive, I I think the big get bigger because they've got economies of scale. I think if you look over the last decade or so, some people got big in grey markets and then legitimised themselves. So you may still see risk profiles where companies come through from small to big or from nowhere to big through innovation or through gray markets or through, let's say, less expensive controls than 
full compliance with the various regulations, etc. And and as they succeed, they make themselves whiter than white. So, but I do think generally the big will get bigger. Um, I think America is particularly interesting because I think America has a America is very litigious and America has a very strong um, patent law and patent protection. So you're going to see a lot of things in America where you can't just copy someone who innovates. So America will protect the innovators. And we've seen recently where an anonymous group of organizations, which would almost certainly be a consortium of competition, tried to get a patent that was granted to Game Account Network, GAN, invalidated. And the patent, in very simple terms, was a patent that said, if I have um, bonused a person in a physical casino, uh, the mechanism for storing that data and moving that data to his online account and allow him to share his comps and his bonuses between an online account and a physical location is patented. And of course, maybe it had been done, maybe it hadn't been done, uh, maybe there was prior art, maybe there wasn't, maybe it was inventive, maybe it wasn't, uh, maybe kind of ultimately didn't matter because the patent office in North America granted it. Uh, it was disputed by a bunch of people by saying, well, there's prior art, this, that, and the other. There was a case regarding it, and Game Account Network managed to enforce a patent that I think on average people might have said, I don't see how that's enforceable. Well, now Game Account Network are going around to all of these people and saying, guys, you know, we've already enforced this. You better pay us or make another very expensive attempt at invalidating this, um, which will probably fail because we've already won once. So when you look at that, um, you know, and, and of course, it's a bit annoying because you'll have a lot of people running around America saying, oh, I've got this pattern and that pattern, and they're all a bit opaque. But I do think you'll see um, people in America have particular strengths. I think patent holders will have a lot of strength. I think the racing content people will have a lot of strength because if I run a sports book in America and I don't have racing content on Breeders' Cup, on the Triple Crown, I want to have a bet on that. It's on TV. It's the headline news article on national um, NBC and uh, ESPN, et cetera, et cetera. And I am on a, uh, I say, DraftKings account because they don't currently have um, racing. Well, I'm on a DraftKings account. I can't bet on racing. So today I have to open an Express Bet account or a TVG account. Um, and I'll go to TVG and I have my race bet. Oh, I'm on TVG now. Actually, they have a FanDuel Sportsbook. Actually, I can just bet on the FanDuel Sportsbook here. So I do think, um, you know, people who have the full suite of content uh, will be in strong positions. And I think in places like America, the full suite of content is not necessarily liberally available to everyone through either supply of data, supply of product, or um, supply of patent and intellectual property. So I do think places like America will be a different battleground from places like uh, Europe, which I guess for the moment is the, you know, gambling mecca of the world in, in terms of liberalization and competition, because while Hong Kong and Australia and, and Japan in many senses are gambling meccas, 
um, a lot of those still are, are quasi-monopolistic in how they operate. Yeah, absolutely. No doubt it's an interesting space to keep an eye on with changes happening you know, right now in the US. So, Bernard, I want to thank you again for your time. What's You're relatively active on Twitter. What's uh, your Twitter handle for those that want to get active with you? And also, what's the, the best way to get started with Colossus Bets? Uh, so I would actually have to log into Twitter to tell you what my Twitter handle is. I, I don't know if it's at Bernard Colossus or at Colossus Bernard. So I'm just, I'll drag it up on my phone while I'm here. And it is at Bernard Colossus, uh, is my Twitter handle. Um, look in terms of, um, if you want to play the Colossus pools, see what the cash out features are, etc. Look, I have about 50 partners feeding into my site. Uh, I cover a lot of jurisdictions. So I think, uh, you know, Google, look for it. But, you know, my big partners, uh, if you're in Africa, play with Betway, play with Naira Bet. If you're in Ireland, play with uh, the tote, the Irish tote. If you're in the UK, uh, Betfair, Matchbook, BetDAC, Boil Sports. If you're in uh, France, uh, BetClick. If you're in Europe, Bingo. If you're in Sweden, Betfair. If you're in Finland, PATH. Uh, if you're in uh, Russia and Eastern Europe, uh, it'll be Marathon shortly. If you're in South America, go to um, Apoista. Um, yeah, so a whole mixture around the world. Uh, as I say, I'm with about 50 operators now, but I guess the big ones are, um, you know, Betfair, Paddy Power, BetClick, um, and, and and Betway in Africa. I guess are the biggest are the biggest of those. Awesome! Thank you very much, Bernard. Not a problem, Jake. Thanks for your time. 